0: Everyone and welcome to For the Record the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 1970s. This is Amy, your host for this one woman, one mic show. On today's episode, we will examine the religious revival in the 1970s and how it was reflected in popular music. The author Tom Wolfe wrote an essay for New York Magazine in 1976 in which he referred to this revival as the Third Great Awakening, which was also related to the Me Decade tagline that he applied to the 70s. We'll discuss that, but first, thank you for supporting this podcast by listening, and as always, I appreciate those of you who took the time to contact me and tell me how much you're enjoying the show. You can find my contact information on FTR70.com or you can send me a message on Instagram at 70s Podcast. You will also find Patreon links on FTR70.com, and that is how you can offer some financial support to the podcast. Also, if you cannot get enough 70s nostalgia in your podcast feed, I recommend listening to the ladies at Pop Culture Preservationist Society who talk about all things 70s and 80s, like our favorite TV theme songs, Uh, Battle of the Network Stars, you know, I always rooted for ABC when I watched that, not exactly sure why. At any rate, check out Pop Culture Preservationist Society wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s, according to the New York Times, was The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Mr. Lindsey, who ironically is now in his 90s and still walks among us wrote a book that proclaimed the apocalypse was coming. He has, in fact, made a career out of predicting the coming of the apocalypse, which is nothing new in of itself. He, or his ghostwriter, just spread the word in a more accessible way in looped-in contemporary issues like the Cold War. This creation of an industry that catered to people who believed that the apocalypse was coming is just one segment of American society that was turning to some form of religion or religious beliefs to help them make sense of the world around them. We could see this happening in the 1960s. The hippie movement of the 60s evolved into something that Tom Wolfe pointed out became blatantly more religious. Even before we got out of the 60s, a segment of hippies who did not like the drug and sex-focused lifestyle that they found in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, morphed into something that came to be known as the Jesus Freaks that Elton John sings about in Tiny Dancer, long-haired evangelicals who urged other young people to turn away from drugs and sex and turn toward Jesus. This is just one way that we see the influence of religion in an era when self-discovery is celebrated, and while it was definitely not just about Christianity— There's no question that evangelical Christians led the way. In fact, one study in 1978 identified one quarter of the United States as evangelical, and by 1982, 32% of Americans considered themselves to be born-again Christians. It should come as no surprise, then, that Americans elected the rock-music-loving, born-again Baptist Jimmy Carter as President of the United States in 1976, it also is a fact that evangelicals, who were previously not so interested in being politically active, became politically active because of what they perceived to be an attack on morality and values by the government itself. The Supreme Court affirms the right for women to have a legal abortion in Roe v. Wade in 1973. Prayer in schools is outlawed, and being openly gay was becoming somewhat more acceptable until the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. Still, despite the religious revival, merging religion and popular music, this is a field fraught with landmines. As a writer of a song, you run the risk of offending a lot of people if it appears that you are rewriting what many believe to be true, or if you are perceived as making light of religious beliefs. There is also the risk of referencing the, quote, wrong religion or religious belief or just irritating someone for referencing religion at all. Bruce Schulman, in his book The 70s, points out that historians can see by the end of the 80s, religion was far more likely to divide us rather than unite us. The Nixon era of the 70s was already deeply divided on issues of social change, uh, like segregation, the feminist movement, and even the age gap as young adults argued with older adults about the direction the country was taking, kind of like the arguments you used to see between Mike Stivick and Archie Bunker on All in the Family. I cannot and I will not try to make the case that the presence of gospel-influenced music, outright gospel or other music that referenced religion, was some attempt by musical acts to convert fans or to indoctrinate. The connection between religion and popular music is not that straightforward. It would be inaccurate to say that the presence of popular music with religious themes was a wholesale reaction to the rise in religion in American society. We have to remember that merging religion and pop or rock, this was not a 1970s phenomenon. For that, we can thank Sister Rosetta Tharp, who was combining electric guitar and gospel in the 30s and 40s. Here's a sample of her first single released in 1939, when she was 23 years old. Rock Me. Now won't you hear me singing The other words that I'm saying Wash my soul with water from on high why the world of love is around me We just can't tell the story of rock and roll without Sister Rosetta Tharp. And the idea of melding religion and popular music, well, the likes of Elvis, Ray Charles, Johnny Cash, they just continued on with what she started. What the 1970s offers is space for the remnants of the hippie movement of the 60s and this desire to seek enlightenment and the interest in religions other than Christianity. We also see a desire for positive messages, maybe even answers in the midst of the chaos of the Vietnam War, Watergate, neglected cities, and gas shortages. Norman Greenbaum, yes, he is Jewish, was inspired to write Spirit in the Sky by hearing country star Porter Wagner sing Pastor Absent on Vacation on television. This is just one of many country gospel songs from Wagner, whose TV show is notable for being the career-launching pad uh, for Dolly Parton. Greenbaum said in an interview with the Associated Press in 1970, "...the love generation fizzled out into revolution, but I think some people really wanted to believe in something. It's hard to believe in government. Religion could really capture everybody again." Religion has a chance to get love back into people's lives. Now, some people were unhappy with the never been a sinner, never sinned part of this song, which outweighed the I have a friend in Jesus part of the song. Greenbaum said he meant no harm, and 50 years later, he made this comment to Rolling Stone. It did upset some people. When I said I can do this, that didn't mean I could do it perfectly. It wasn't my religion. I just did it. I didn't think twice about it. I took some of the seriousness out of it, but I didn't do it as a joke or against anyone. I guess people can take offense to almost anything. There was the song about the plastic Jesus on your dashboard. They liked that one. Now, quite a few churches have put this into their services, and they sing it quite often, so it turned out okay. To be blunt, I don't think it's on the shit list. Now, from a musical standpoint, I argue that it's the fuzz tone from his Fender guitar that helped push Spirit in the Sky into the top 10. You know what I'm talking about. Let's listen. <laughs> As you can hear in that clip, first of all, that distinctive tone is from a fuzz box that's built right into the guitar. Also, in in the background, the background singers, that's actually a gospel trio. They're from Oakland, California, the Stovall sisters, who are backing up Norman Greenbaum. Uh, He took Spirit in the Sky to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in April 1970. George Harrison said he was inspired to write My Sweet Lord by the gospel song, Oh Happy Day, by the Edwin Hawkins singers. In 1968, Edwin Hawkins took this hymn and crafted it into a pop hit, one of the first, if not the first gospel song to do so. I always hate to say something's a first. Somebody will prove me wrong. So at least one of the first. This had much more to do with the fact that churches did not approve of their singers profiting from hymns. In doing so, Hawkins invited some criticism and also showed what gospel music can be. Have you seen Summer of Soul, the Quest Love documentary on the 1969 Harlem Culture Festival? Watch it and pay attention to the segment on The Fifth Dimension and the Edwin Hawkins Singers. You can find that uh, documentary on Hulu. Despite the backlash, Hawkins said he believed that young people especially needed songs like Oh Happy Day, because they were turning away from the church, but they were still confused about life. Hawkins said that rather than taking the gospel to them by preaching, it may be better to take it to them in song. So Harrison wanted to write a song in that vein, but gave it a lot of thought, because he said, I would be committing myself publicly, and I anticipated that a lot of people might get weird about it. Many people fear the words, Lord and God, It makes them angry for some strange reason. Now let's think about where Harrison was in his career as he's thinking about the risks involved in writing a song titled My Sweet Lord. Harrison, who's considered the third Beatle, always in the shadow of John Lennon and Paul McCartney, was writing the song something? Was that just a fluke? Who was George Harrison if he was no longer a Beatle? So out of the gate, he releases All Things Must Pass. A triple album with Phil Spector as co producer, an embarrassment of musical talent backing him up. Eric Clapton, Billy Preston, Gary Wright, Ringo Starr, all four members of Badfinger, and well, as much as I love Band on the Run, this might be the best of the Beatles' solo albums. Out of the gate, I could listen to it just for Harrison's signature slide guitar alone. Oh, by the way. Billy Preston released My Sweet Lord, backed up by the Edwin Hawkins singers, before Harrison did. Preston's sounds a lot more gospel than Harrison's, which does sound like a pop song, to me, at least. Lyrically, My Sweet Lord is a risk, because it not only mentions the Lord, but Harrison is paying homage to both Christianity and to his newfound interest in Hinduism. In the background, you hear Hallelujah and Hare Krishna, Some Christians don't like this, but for Harrison, it reflects this affection he has for both. Musically, though, I would be remiss to gloss over the fact that Harrison plagiarized He's So Fine, written by Ronnie Mack for the Chiffons in 1963. A judge did determine that Harrison didn't mean to do it, but as I tell my students, and I'm sure many of the teachers who listen to this podcast do too, plagiarism does not have to be intentional. John Lennon said he was not so sure it was unintentional and said maybe Harrison thought the Lord would let him off the hook. It is a bit odd that Phil Spector did not pick up on this. Nonetheless, this is a bit of My Sweet Lord from 1970. of He's So Fine on this podcast. I would say uh, if you are maybe a younger listener and isn't you're not familiar with He's So Fine, go dial that up and and listen to it. It is very very similar. Another thing about that particular clip that strikes me as you can hear with with the tambourine, you you can hear that it's actually this celebration of these two religions that Harrison is exploring. Uh, My Sweet Lord from the All Things Must Pass album went to number one in December 1970, hung out there for about a month. The song that held on to that number one spot longer than any other in 1970 was, wait for it, Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. It was number one for six weeks, and it is as gospel-influenced as any song of the early 1970s. Thinking a little bit more about John Lennon's comment about whether or not the plagiarism was intentional. You know, he also made kind of a snarky comment about My Sweet Lord being on the radio all the time, which is not unusual for John Lennon to make snarky comments. It's is it just a coincidence though that a year later John Lennon released Imagine, which asks us to imagine a peaceful world, imagine there is no heaven, No religion, too. He was asked, and Yoko Ono, after his death, asked several times if they would permit using that song, Imagine, and changing the song to one religion instead of no religion, to which the answer is a resounding no. The song asks us to consider a whole different world where one religion is not better than another. Jesus Christ Superstar was released as an album in 1970 also, before it was on stage because Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice could not get the money for a stage production. The first stage performance was not held until October 1971, before both of those things was the single Superstar by Murray Head and the Trinidad Singers, which was released in the fall of 69. It kind of snuck into the Billboard Hot 100 in January 1970, made it to something like 74, and was back and forth off the charts a couple of times over the next several months. Of course, there were many people who did not like Jesus Christ Superstar because they thought that Judas was portrayed too sympathetically, but the musical and the song did resonate with many other people. Enter Godspell, which made its off-Broadway debut in May 1971. 1971 is the same year that the Canadian band Ocean scored a number two hit with Put Your Hand in the Hand, and the same year that Judy Sill wrote Jesus Was a Crossmaker, which has been covered by many singers such as Linda Ronstadt and Warren Zevon. Cat Stevens released Morning Has Broken in 1971. You get the idea? You see the theme here? Godspell was made into a movie in 1973 before hitting the Broadway stage in 76. It was nominated for a Tony for best score. It did win a Grammy for that, and it had a hit on the Billboard Hot 100 day by day. Both Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell were criticized for not clearly depicting the resurrection of Jesus, but that was not the prevailing point of view. For many people, The appeal of these two musicals was in the positive message. In fact, Robin Lamont, who was in the original cast and in the movie, said in May 2021, the 50th anniversary of Godspell's debut, by the way, she said, Although I'm not a very religious person, it was in many ways an act of love. I think many actors feel that way when they help create a show, but this was a particular love. That's an interesting comment. Now, this is from a review from the Godspell production at the historic Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. in 1973, where Godspell had been playing for a year. That revolting household word, Watergate, was scarcely heard during intermission or at the happy party afterward. The Watergate curse was off, for the evening anyway, because Godspell is so alive, happy, and powerful. For more than a year now, Godspell has turned Ford's Theater into a temple of theatrical, religious celebration, causing record audiences to feel joy, clap their hands, and leave with a marvelous feeling that there's nothing like loving your neighbor. Now, I say it's pretty clear from this review that the appeal of Godspell was the positive messaging, a message of hope in a time when it was much needed. Here is Robin Lamont singing the lead on Day by Day from Godspell. Day by day, it's been 14 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1972. It made it to number 13 in the last week of July of that year. Also in 1972, the Staples Singers released their hit, I'll Take You There. Tom Bryan, the author of the number one's column for Stereo Gum, asked these questions in his column about I'll Take You There by the Staples Singers. Does a religious song have to be about a specific system of beliefs? Does it have to invoke deities, or denominations, or holy words? Or can it just be a song about imagining a better place, a better future? Let's take a closer look. That the Staples Singers are in both the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Gospel Hall of Fame tells you something about this group. It was Purvis Staples, son of Pop and brother of Mavis, who facilitated the transition from gospel to a more mainstream sound that at times was R&B, at times it was folk, at times it was pop. Purvis was not part of the group in the 70s when the Staple Singers had hits with Respect Yourself in 1971 and I'll Take You There in 1972 and Let's Do It Again in 1975. Can a song be classified as a gospel song if there's no mention of God or a god? If so, I agree with Tom Bryan on this. I'll Take You There is that song. The lyrics are hopeful, inspirational. They're not about any specific God. I know a place, ain't nobody crying, ain't nobody worried, ain't no smiling faces, no, no lying to the races. I'll Take You There, and that's pretty much it. But it's not just about the lyrics, which uh, Mavis mostly ad-libbed while they were recording at Muscle Shoals in Alabama, and oh, by the way... She was not too pleased that Al Bell took the sole songwriting credits, but that's another conversation for another time. It's the music, and the music is gospel. Straight up gospel. Listen. hear the Muscle Shoals influence in this song, too. That's Mavis Staples with the uh, mostly ad-libbing. Teresa Davis of The Emotions, uh, which would have a number one song in 1978 with The Best of My Love, heard the Staples singer's recording I'll Take You There and said, that's a hit. She was right. It went to number one on June 3rd, 1972. Sometimes, though, a song is just a song. Such is the case with the Doobie Brothers and their cover of Jesus is Just All Right. The song was written by the gospel musician Art Reynolds and performed by the Art Reynolds singers in 1966. The Birds covered it in 1969, and that is the version that the Doobie Brothers knew of when they recorded the song in 1972. In fact, Tom Johnston of the Doobie Brothers did an interview for Carl Weiser, who has a very good music website called Song Facts. I did a little freelance writing for him a few years back, and I think his website is very informative. At any rate, in that interview, Tom said that he still has no idea who A.R. Reynolds is and incorrectly stated that the Birds released a recording of the song first, all of which is to confirm that there was no intention on the part of the Doobie Brothers to record a gospel song. Tom said, we were not anti-religious. We weren't anything. We were just musicians out playing a gig. We didn't think about that kind of stuff very often. We would be out playing that song when that came out as a single. And all of these one-wayers, which was a big movement at that time, would be at the show. And they would run up to the stage with their fingers pointed straight up. At first, we didn't get it. And we finally said, oh, I know what's going on. So when we would play that song, they would go nuts. They would throw scriptures on the stage, that sort of thing. Little did they know they were trying to enlist the support. Of the wrong guys. You'll find the video of the Doobie Brothers performing that on the Midnight Special in 1973, a show that many of you may recall brightening our Friday nights, early Saturday mornings in the 1970s. "Jesus Is Just All Right" was released in 1972 on the album Toulouse Street, and it snuck into the top 40 at number 35 in 1973. Don Kirshner, who had a live music TV show called Rock Concert, which was in the same vein as Bert Sugarman's Midnight Special was just about to drop Kansas from his record label in 1975. The band saved themselves when they recorded the album Left Overture. Their albums had been selling okay, but they didn't have a single hit. And as I have said many times, no hit record means no radio play and vice versa. Kansas got that hit with Carry On, Wayward Son in 1976, which made it to number 11, and probably saved the band. There are some Christian themes in Carry On, Wayward Son. Songwriter Carrie Livgren, who became a born-again Christian in late 1979 and went on to become a Christian rock artist, said in an interview with Classic Rock in 2004 that Wayward Son was about his own spiritual journey. It's an autobiographical song, he said. Parallel to my musical career, I've always been on a spiritual sojourn looking for truth and meaning. It was a song of self encouragement. I was telling myself to keep on looking and I would find what I sought. Livgren continued with that with Dust in the Wind on the next Kansas album, Point of No Return. And he makes references to the Bible from Ecclesiastes. I reflected on everything that is accomplished by man on earth, and I concluded everything he has accomplished is futile, like chasing the wind. From Genesis for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. I wonder how many fans of Kansas actually registered the biblical references at the time anyway. I can say I did not when I was a kid. I just liked the song. Regardless of what Livgrin actually intended the meaning of the song to be, like any art, once it is released into the wild, it is up to us to make some meaning of it. The impermanence of life is universal as is the quest to understand why we are here, whether you are a Christian or not. You might also make the case that Liv Grin was borrowing from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, a band that Kansas was often compared to, with the line from Carnival Night, Walls that no man thought would fall, the altars of the just, crushed dust in the wind. I close my- Dust in the Wind, number six in April 1978, the one and only top ten hit for Kansas. Interesting that some members of the clergy rejected this song's message because of the line, all we are is dust in the wind, which takes me back to my point that it can be risky to record a song like this because you are likely to offend someone. Even country music, which has its roots deeply enmeshed in religious themes, cannot escape criticism. Joe Carter, a writer and editor for the website The Gospel Coalition, as well as a fan of country music, said this in 2016. People cherry-pick songs from the past to prove their point. Sure, Johnny Cash sang about religion, but he also talked to him about cheating on his wife. Almost every country artist has family songs and drinking songs. It makes it hard to recommend the genre as a whole to religious audiences, but it keeps country music interesting. By the time we get to the end of the 1970s, Christian rock and pop were their own genres. Consider that Amy Grant has been recording and performing since 1976. Yes, she has pop hits like Baby Baby, but she still identifies as a Christian pop artist, and those are her roots. Of course, the country itself takes a right turn politically and socially as the 70s become the 80s, paving the way for Ronald Reagan to be president for almost the entire decade. It makes sense that popular music would reflect the religious revival in the 70s. Historian Christopher Capozzola said that there was a, quote, sense of crisis and uncertainty. In the 70s, Americans, even more than usual, felt both the necessity and the freedom to reinvent themselves and form new institutions in new communities. I say it should come as no surprise The music was part of the reinvention. That is all for this episode of For the Record the 70s. All of my sources are on FTR70.com. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. If you like the show, please consider becoming a patron, or hey, just share this episode with someone who might like it. That is all for now. Bye, everyone.